Well, in um, May of this year, Josh asked if I would do a series on the Holy Spirit that would cover about a year in our church calendar. And I agreed, but over the, over the last two or three months, I've had several moments where I regretted my decision to do this. Uh, not because the subject matter isn't glorious, because it is. And not because we as a church don't need to study the Holy Spirit, because we do. But my hesitation was because I wasn't sure if I was the best one to teach this to you. I, I feel, I was talking to Rafi about this, I said I feel a little bit like um, uh, a child that visited England many, many years ago, and now as an adult I'm being asked to give tours of England every month. Um, I'm just not sure I have enough experience and knowledge in this area to effectively teach you, but nevertheless, here we are. <clears throat> I will be your tour guide for this journey. So I will be leading you on this journey, but I will also be learning with you. I've learned a lot already as I've prepared this week. And my, my prayer is that this would be a journey of uh, grace and growth for all of us. So let's begin by asking God to help us. Father, we implore you in Jesus' name that you would help us. We know the, the, the subject of the Holy Spirit is of tremendous worth to you. And so much is spoken of the Spirit, in this, particularly in the New Testament. And he is the life of, of the church. He is the one that brings all of all that you are, all that you are in Christ, uh, all that we are in Christ, rather, all that Christ has done and accomplished on the cross, all of your grand purposes. He is the one that effects it in the church. Um, he is the one that lives in us. He is the one that indwells the church. And so we, we ask, uh, help us to come to know this divine person this year and give us illumination of our minds and give us faith and we ask more than that that you would move towards us that infinite gap you would close it so that we would come to know you experientially we ask this in Jesus name Amen for the first text in this series I've chosen 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you could open your Bibles to that. Thessalonians comes after Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians comes just before 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians, a book that we don't necessarily turn to a lot. And I would like to read chapter 2, starting at verse 13 and finish at verse 14. Just two verses. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you 
as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we start this, um, this journey into trying to understand and speak about the Holy Spirit, I, I want us to collectively stand back a bit so that we can get as much into the viewfinder as, as possible. Uh, when you take a picture of a, a country scene, perhaps a farm or, or rolling hills, uh, you like to be far enough back from the houses and all so that you can take it all in. And of course, when you, have a, when you take a picture of a, a large shot, you miss the details. And that's, o- that's okay, because what you're doing is you're, you're providing the context of, of the details that you'll picture and take snap later. In the same way, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to go back and, and take a look at a big view, the big picture, a picture that I'm afraid that we, uh, we don't think about enough as Christians. Uh, this coming year, we're going to talk about the spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about holiness of life. We're going to talk about um, assurance of salvation of the Spirit's work in worship uh, and in prayer and in faithful and bold witness for Christ. These are all areas of immense importance and interest to us. But before we talk about that, I think we need to ask why. Why do all those things matter? Why are they important? Why does it matter that we use spiritual gifts, all the gifts, not just the, the more spectacular ones. Why, it is, why is it important that we, we share our faith with other people? Why does holiness of life matter? In other words, what is the big purpose that all these things are moving us toward? What's the point of it all? Well, look again at our text in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. What we find here is something that we actually find in many places in the New Testament, and that is the triune God is revealed in subtle ways. Uh, We find in verse 13 that God, the Father, is referred to. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. We know that's true because of the the other persons of the Godhead that are mentioned in the verse. It's, it's speaking about God, the Father. Oftentimes in the New Testament, God the Father is not referred to as the Father, but it's just as simply as God, because he stands for the whole. God the Father holds first place in the order. Not meaning, of course, that he is more important than the Son or the Spirit, but then in the divine economy, he is first in rank and position. The Son is sent by the Father. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Never in Scripture do you ever read ever that the Father is sent by the Son or by the Spirit. And therefore, he holds, in a sense, first place in rank and therefore is often referred to as God. Next, we find in verse 13, 
We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. The Lord is mentioned. Now, the designation Lord usually refers to the Son in the New Testament, but not always. However, we can be sure that the word Lord in verse 13 does because of the way the sentence is structured grammatically. If, if Paul meant Lord to refer to God, the, the unity of God, uh, he would have probably said something like this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you bro- brothers beloved by him. That would have been more natural. And in fact, he wouldn't have inserted uh, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved after he mentioned Lord, if he wasn't actually taking a pause away from God the Father for a moment to speak about God the Son. And that is what he's doing. He mentions God, then he says the Lord, then he mentions again, God chose you. And then finally, at the end of verse 13, it says, through sanctification by the Spirit. The Spirit is in, introduced. So we find in this short verse, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all are spoken of. And of course, we are going to put the accent today on the, the work of the Spirit. What I want to show you today, in the short time that we have together, is simply this, that the Spirit takes us on a life-changing journey toward glory. The Spirit takes us on a life-changing journey toward glory. And I get this from verse 14, where he says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the tradition of Josh, who's now taking us away from three-point sermons to two-point sermons, I also today will have two points. And then we will apply the lesson learned in our lives. So the first big picture truth that we need to know from our text is that the Spirit saves us from perishing. The Spirit saves us from perishing. In the verses immediately prior, from verses from verses 10, 11, and 12, we, we, we find a very sobering description of the unbelieving world presented to us. Let me read it to you. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 10 reveals to us that evil manifests itself as deception. It's called wicked deception. And this wicked deception that is at work in the world clouds not just the mind of people, but it corrupts their will as well. Notice it says in verse 10 that they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The way deception works in the world is it, it deceives us into loving what should be hated and hating what should be loved. 
This is the way that sin acts on the human soul when God is not present. Well, reading verse 10 should be terrifying, and it is. But verse 11 makes it even worse. When God sees the world's rejection of his truth, and indeed the hatred of his truth, it says in verse 11 that God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Notice what it says in verse 11. It starts with, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. This delusion that God sends is a response to people's refusal to be saved. This is basically God giving people what they want, what they've chosen. It is God removing, restraining grace and replacing it with a delusion. And it goes on to say in verse 12 that this occurs in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, we just don't have time to expand on these verses, but I want you to notice something, that God describes people's lostness in terms of pleasures and loves. In verse 10, it says, they didn't love the truth. They refused to love the truth. And then in verse 12, it says they had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, my friends, it isn't just what we do or we don't do that matters to God. It's what we want to do. Our desires reveal our fallenness. Now, these verses are the background to our passage today. What Paul is doing is he's, the apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he's, he's making a contrast between the world that is at present persecuting the church. He's saying that this, the world that is persecuting and making it hard for the church will be ultimately lost. And then right away he talks in verse 13 about the church, the church that is being persecuted that they will be ultimately saved. Now, what makes the difference between these two groups of people? Notice in our verses that the emphasis is on what they believe. In verse 12 it says, speaking of the world, in order that they may be condemned, who did not believe the truth. The description of the world is that they are people who do not believe the truth. And then the description of the church who will be saved is in verse 13 it says uh, that they are saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Not believing the truth and believing the truth. It's what we believe or what we don't believe that determines whether we will be saved or condemned in the end. But we still haven't asked enough questions because if, if belief is what makes the difference, the question again comes up, well, what makes some people believe the truth and other people not believe it? 
Do you know the answer to that? Why do you believe what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? I don't think enough of us have thought about this. We are very, uh, we live in a very autonomous thinking world where we think we, we're the masters of our own fate. I wonder if that's true. Notice what it says in verse 13. To be saved, God, God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This word sanctification, as you know, is it's a it's an important word. It's an important theological word in the New Testament. And I think we tend to think that it always means one thing. It actually means two things. And often in the New Testament, it means different from what we think it means. So one use of the word sanctification is progressive, slow, gradual growth in godliness. That's what sanctification is. It comes from the word holy, that God is gradually making us like Jesus in character and in heart. That's one of the meanings of the word, and there are many verses that mean that in the New Testament. But there are also many verses in the New Testament that mean meaning be. And meaning be just means, sanctification just means to set apart. If you have a lot of dishes, but you set one, a set apart for guests, that's, you've sanctified them, you see? It means to consecrate. To, to, to remove something from one place to another and use it for special use. I think that's what it means in this case. I think uh, there's the, the, the context points that way. People believe the truth then, my friends, not because they have the good sense to do so, but because the Holy Spirit supernaturally changes their heart and sets them apart to God. Another way that this is expressed in the New Testament is that we are born again. We, we, we tend to think being born again is something we choose. It's never presented that way uh, in the New Testament. A child doesn't make himself be born, right? We don't, we're not there, Nobody's, no little child is there in the wombs thinking, okay, I think I've had it with this dark space, I'm ready to go now. The child's not deciding the process. He's born when, when he's ready to be born. We are born spiritually by when God decides it's gonna happen. And, and the, the word that is used is being born again or the, the theological word is re regeneration. It's when, when the Holy Spirit regenerates people. He, he raises them from spiritual death and gives them life. Listen to how the scriptures talk about this process in other places. In Titus it says, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. See that? Then in John 1, 12 to 13, it says this, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That verse we know well. We usually don't connect it to verse 13. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from 
God. Uh, We could go so many places with this, but we just don't have time. But that's the first truth we need to know about the Spirit. That if you are a believer here today, if you are somebody who believes in Jesus Christ, if you have become a believer in Christ, you are that way because the Holy Spirit did something for you. Yes, your faith mattered but you were only able to exercise faith in the first place because the Holy Spirit did something prior to you. He raised you from the dead and gave you the capacity to believe. You have been born of the Spirit. So, we have been saved, therefore, from condemnation. Christ is the one that does it all for us, that makes it possible, but it's the Spirit that... that brings it into our life and makes the goodness of Christ's death and resurrection real in our life. So we have been, the Spirit works to save us from something. But that's only half the story. And it's really the second half that I really want to accent today. Um, We have been not only saved from condemnation, but we have been saved for glory, for glory. And my friends, this is at the very heart of the good news of the gospel. This is what God is doing. This is why the gospel is good news. The spirit saves us for glory. The spirit saves us for glory. Verse 14 is short and concise but says staggering and amazing things. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word so that in verse 14. That's purpose. It's it's telling us what the point is of salvation is this amazing rescue that was planned by God the Father, executed by Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. Here's the the why. Why are people saved? Why does God bother to save anybody? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. I was telling Joanne earlier this week, it's just, when I got to this point, I said, uh, it's, it's hopeless. There's too much to say. I've got to take 10, 10 sermons just to talk on that one point, but we can't. So it's, I'm boiling it all down, 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 down. You're just going to get the, the kernel of what this means, and frankly, I don't even know what it means. So I'm going to tell you what I think it means. What is this glory? The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we obtain through the work of the Spirit. What is this glory and what does it mean that we obtain it? Well, the word glory is a huge word. Um, In the Hebrew, it's uh, kabod, which means weightiness. Uh, I think it's in in the Greek, it's it's doxa. Uh, it, it, 
It means many things in many contexts, but the essential meaning of glory is it's talking about the godness of God. Uh, it's talking about the, the, his beauty, his perfections, his greatness and his goodness that is shining out and spilling out and radiating outward. Uh, glory is something that only God has. And it's something that he doesn't share with anybody else. It's, it belongs to him alone. Uh, Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anybody else. But here is the amazing and even shocking truth that is revealed in this verse and many others in the New Testament, and that is that on one level, God does not share his glory, doesn't let us pretend that we're God, but on another level, he does share his glory. He shares his glory not in the sense of us possessing it the way God intrinsically possesses glory, but he does share it in the sense of us being in awe of it and enjoying it and living in the good of it, being transfixed by it, being transformed by it. If I could use a couple of rough illustrations to describe what I'm saying, it's kind of like this year, those of you who watch the NBA, it's like watching LeBron James shoot that 51-point game with eight rebounds and eight assists in the playoffs. I mean, this guy has intrinsic glory of jaw-dropping ability. And, and as you watch somebody do that kind of stuff, you, you, you delight in, in seeing them perform. You feel delight when they're doing it. You feel wonder and awe and appreciation. And some people, they actually worship. Or, or for those of you who are music lovers, it's like hearing Itzhak Perlman playing his 1714 Stradivarius in a concert, and he finishes, and there's this half second of silence, and suddenly everybody jumps to their from their seat and, and roars in, in applause and, and bravo. And, and for a brief moment, you feel like you're part of the music. You're, you're, you're carried out of yourself. There's a transcendent moment that actually does come when you hear um, people of unusual capacity perform. Those partaking of the music, those enjoying it, those being lifted out of themselves don't, don't have the intrinsic capacity of the, the person playing, but they, they participate in the enjoyment and the beauty and excellence and, and they're, they're affected by it. So what does it mean exactly to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus? Um, I've talked to our leaders, Josh and Brett and Cyril, a lot, and some of you who have come heard me at permitting 
about uh, my reading of Augustine, St. Augustine from the fourth century. And uh, he has, I was writing to one of the pastors um, in Sovereign Grace about a month back, and I was saying, you know, one of the things that Augustine has done for me is he's made me realize that that so much of the Christian life is really a seeing. It's when we see that we change. It's what we see and what we don't see that makes all the difference. Well, this is what this, this glory, this sharing of glory is. It's, it's a way of seeing that's coming for us in the future that transcends anything we have ever known. You, 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 you cannot think that the, the future hope of the believer is just that we're gonna be in some kind of like little cloudy place with boring looking angels, um, you know, where you just see nothing and there's a bunch of clouds. Um, that's, the way, that's the way Hollywood presents heaven. Heaven is, is glorious because it's a heaven and an earth. Our f- future existence is gonna be physical and the glory of it is that God himself is gonna be there. And, and we can't see God, but we can see God in the, in the face of Christ. We're going to behold Christ in his glorified humanity, and we will see his deity. Remember, this, this, this God that we worship is infinite, everlasting. He existed forever. I was... I was going to give you an illustration about the closest, the far, for rather the farthest star that we're aware of, and I never got to it. I just remembered, <laughs> but I can, without giving you the details, it's like this: that the the farthest star, which is thousands of light years away, if you put a line from that to our present, to right now. And if you put a grain of sand on on that line and then stretch the line out that way as far, all of human history is like that grain of sand. Everything that we know about the universe, the creation of the universe, everything is that grain of sand. God has existed eternally. You're, You're dealing with a person that's immense and vast, beyond belief, and we will, through Christ, somehow enter into knowing that one and seeing that one. It's unimaginable. This is the purpose of our existence. The great Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck, many think he is as great as, as John Calvin, says this, that fellowship on that future day will be richer, deeper, and more blessed than it ever was or could be on earth, since it will not be disturbed by any sin or interrupted by any distance or mediated by either scripture or nature. And what he means by that, the nature thing is, you know, sometimes you see a sunset or you see uh, people do amazing things and you're, you're taken out of yourself. He says, now as we look into the mirror of God's revelation, we only see his image. Then we will see him face to face and know as we are known 
contemplation, understanding, and enjoyment of God make up the essence of our future blessedness. The redeemed see God, not to be sure with physical eyes, but still in a way that far outstrips all revelation in this dispensation via nature and scripture. I was so glad um, that you, uh, Brian, came up with this verse from Psalm 17 in our prayer time. Listen to these verses. As for me, Psalm 17, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. Happiness forever. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 5. Peter is speaking and he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then this, these two verses again from Peter, which I love so much, they're amazing. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Not the essence of God. You know, the Orthodox Church talks about the I forget what they, how they refer to the essence and then they talk the energies of God, the things that he shares with us. We partake of, of that. We partake of his, there's elements of his character. Uh, there's, there's elements of immortality that the, in the future await us. We'll never be as God, only God can be God, but he shares glory with us, particularly the glory of the communion that the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoy forever. He'll bring us into that. My friends, this is something that the Holy Spirit is taking us toward. This is what it's all about. This is where we're headed. He gives us the capacity for faith in the truth and transfers us to God's kingdom. But he does this, he he takes us away from condemnation so that we can one day see what is most beautiful, what is pure goodness, what is the final expression of every longing for joy that you've ever had. We are saved not just from sin, we are saved for glory. This is the purpose of it all, to see and enjoy God forever. This is what the gospel is for. Look at verse 14. To this you were called through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has been given 
to deliver us to perfect happiness in God's presence, not just away from unending misery. And that's wonderful in itself. But it's more than just forgiveness of sins. And that's wonderful. And that's glorious. But he, he has saved us from something to something. And how should this affect us? How should we be affected by this truth? Well, verse 13 tells us, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. We ought always to give thanks to God for each other. This truth changes the way that I think about believers. It changes the way that I think about my, my wife and my son and each of you. I, 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 when I'm looking at someone who belongs to Christ, I see something that is truly amazing. As C.S. Lewis has said, if, wasn't going to quote it to you, I've quoted it to you too many times, but we are, we are dealing with everlasting splendors. Your husband, your wife, the friend beside you right now, if they belong to Christ, they are destined for glory, unimaginable glory, unimaginable happiness, unimaginable love received and offered back to God. And so, it just fundamentally changes the way we think about one another. And we can give thanks. Because when I look at somebody that's a, a struggling person or they're a bit of a whiner or they're, they're a little irritating uh, or they're, they're, they're coming back at me with the same old little thing that they've done so many times over the years, um, my thanks to God for them is not on the basis of that, obviously. My thanks to God is on the basis that I look at them with all their flaws and their bad breath, you know, and I, and I look at them and what do I see? I see somebody through the eyes of faith that's gonna be glorious someday and enjoying glory. And, and not just like this little, this little speck of time that we're locked into that seems so important that's gonna be over so quickly. And eternity is a long time, my friends. And that's what this is gonna be in eternity. It tells us in Isaiah, we won't even bring the former things to mind. This world that we hang on to so desperately, we don't, you know, we're praying for Jesus to come, but you know, not now. You know, I've got a few plans. I want to get that house. I've got that iPhone I want to buy. So like, Lord, I'd love you to come, but not quite yet because I got important things. Uh, it's just like nothing. Even in the New Testament, even all the sufferings, and the, a lot of the sufferings there were big. They were, people were dying for their faith. But even those sufferings were relatively small compared to eternity and glory. That's what Paul's trying to encourage the Thessalonians who are encountering deep suffering for their faith. Don't know how to pray for others? Give thanks to God for them. That's what I'm finding. Whenever my, whenever my prayer life starts to get really stale, 
Um, rather than just praying that people will change and this will happen and this will happen, I just spend time thanking God for people. And it says, amazingly, in verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Always, 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 always. Everything else that we are gonna be thinking about concerning the Holy Spirit this year happens under the umbrella of this overarching purpose. This is ultimately the hope that we live for because, my friends, glory awaits us. Glory awaits us. Let's pray. Help us, Father, to see what you reveal in Scripture. And even more importantly, to believe it. We can hear a message like this, but we can walk away and say, I don't believe that. Or we recognize that we don't, we're not even capable of believing apart from your Spirit's work. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us faith to believe your word, to believe your truth. And to see what you have prepared for us in Christ. Truly amazing things that are so much better than anything we could imagine. Everything we long for, everything we desire, all the things that we clamor for in this world, at the end of the day, it's beyond it is really desiring something that we can't be satisfied with in this world. And we ask that you will show us that and help us to see each other in light of the end. As Stephen Covey said in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, begin with the end in mind. Lord, I pray that we would begin with the end in mind when we talk to others and we think about others. Change us, we pray. Make us thankful. Make us a thankful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.